You're listening to Recovery Nuggets Podcast, where we give you recovery nuggets to chew on and think about on your journey in recovery and on the path, featuring your host, David Clemen. What's up, all you recovery nuggets out there? Quick intro to this week's episode. This week, Tim Lodgen uh, jumps on the podcast to talk about surviving 27 years of alcohol addiction, and now he is changed his mission in life to help people in need and to show those still suffering that we can recover and chase our dreams. So I hope you enjoy the episode. My uh, audio on my mic was a little messed up this episode. It kind of sounds like I'm in a uh, closet. So, you know, it's got a little bit of an echo and uh, I apologize. I think I didn't have the mic turned on. um, And so it just recorded it through the computer. So, uh, you know, little bit of learning curve and uh somebody forgot to turn on their microphone all right hope you enjoy the episode thanks again hey it's me again just wanted to give everyone a trigger warning in this episode the topic of suicide is described in detail in this episode so please be warned and um just wanted to give you a heads up all right thanks again welcome to another episode of recovery nuggets i'm David Clemen. I'm here with Tim Lodgen. Hey, Tim, how you doing, man? Good, David. How are you doing today? Good. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, reaching out and uh, getting to know you a little bit before we started here. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate your posts and your journey in recovery. And I hear you celebrated a uh, soberversary recently. 11 months today, man. Yep. Dude, I got to tell awesome. you, it went by fast. It really right. did. Really did. And the best part about it is I remember every month. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that's right there is a huge gift of recovery. Oh, 100%. I, I, I can barely remember my 20s. I honestly almost do not remember any of my 30s. And at the last year of my addiction in my 40s, um, it got extremely bad. That was when it got really the worst was the last year of my addiction. Yeah. So I'm truly blessed to wake up every morning sober, be able to share experiences with my family, to be present in my family. And um, I, I used to regret on how long I, I drank and, and used drugs. You know, 27 years is a very long time. It's three quarters of my life. But I'm finally realizing that that was my story. That was my path that I had to go on to, to be able to have the gratitude for what this life truly is. I took everything for granted. Um, I didn't appreciate anything that my higher power had given me. And I just wasn't ready to receive the gift of sobriety yet. And after 27 years, I finally was able to receive that gift and, and be truly truly grateful for everything that that it has brought me to in this point in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's a, it's a common theme that you hear with people in recovery. Once they, I mean, for me, it was the gift of desperation that took me to finally ask for the help that I needed and go to a meeting. So uh, what, how did your, how did your journey start and tell us a little bit about your, you know, your story and then how you ended up in recovery. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, all through my, my life up until high school, I was an athlete, um, baseball, football. I was a semi-professional skateboarder. 
um, boxer, a junior Olympic boxer. Um, I didn't do drugs or alcohol at all. In um, ninth grade, I went to a party and I drank beer and I got really, really sick. And I didn't do anything again until my senior year of high school. Um, once I started senior year in high school, uh, I started drinking. I started using drugs and all my extracurricular activities went out the window. I completely stopped all athletics. I completely stopped doing good in school. I started hanging out with the wrong crowd. My priorities became going to parties, picking up chicks, and and just pretty much just being wild. Um, and when I joined the Marine Corps right after high school, I was like, oh, cool, I can get clean. Well, I got clean off the drugs, but we drank like it was our job. I mean, when we got off, we got off at four o'clock, we drank until one o'clock in the morning and was back up at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning and did it again. Now, this is from 18 to 22. So I was a young man. I was able to do that. Um, right. I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't be able to do that now. But that was just like part of it was like a badge of honor. It was kind of like what they expected was we worked hard, we drank hard and we did it again. So. I didn't really look at it as a problem in my twenties because I was like, well, this is, everybody's doing it. You know, I'm in the right. Marines. That's what we do. Um, I got out of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and we would go out to bars and our sergeants and our gunnery sergeants and, and our commanders were all at the same bars. And the only thing they would say is just make sure you're up at three 30. You know, it wasn't even like you're, you wasn't supposed to be here. They were, they were out doing the same damn thing. So it was, <laughs> it was just common. Um, when I got home from the Marines, um, it took me a while to decompress. Um, about a good three months, I moved back into my mom's house. And um, it was really hard for me to adjust being out of the service and and being a civilian again. You know, I didn't have a job. I didn't I didn't feel at place with, with society. Um, you know, I spent six months in Somalia and I saw and did things that human beings really shouldn't do. Um, so I had a really hard time getting over that. And at the age of 21, 21, I, I found myself um, suicidal. Mm. Um, now I pulled my stepfather's gun out of his armoire and, and I put it on my lap and I contemplated taking my own life. And luckily I had a girlfriend at the time and she came over and, and we talked, she pretty much talked me down and I put it back. And that was the first time I realized that it affected me in the way that it did. Um, I always thought it was normal to do what we were doing because that's what we were trained to do. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize it till I got home that that's not what humans are supposed to be doing. And I, it took me a while to get over that. And on top of it, you know, I do suffer from bipolar disorder. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 14. So my highs are extremely high. And my lows are off the charts. I mean, I, I I would not get up for three or four weeks. I wouldn't take a shower. I wouldn't brush my teeth. I wouldn't eat. You know, I was extremely depressed. And that's when the height of my PTSD and my depression really came into play is when I got out. Um, about a year after I got out, I met my wife, whom I went to high school with her. So I knew her. We grew up together in the same neighborhood, but we were just friends. And um, we got together about two years after that, we had my, our first daughter. And I had a job. I went to work. I wasn't drinking every day. But when Friday came, I drank Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And it wasn't one or two beers. It was six to 12. It was drinking till I threw up or passed out, um, drinking till I got in a fight or, you know, caused some kind of problems or chaos at home. So it wasn't a normal 
release. It was everything to the extreme. And that pretty much went on all through my 20s. When I hit my 30s, we had our second daughter. And um, I realized that life was starting to really get serious because I was like, now I have two kids and I have a lot more on my plate and I couldn't deal with the stress. So my drinking escalated in my 30s from six to 12 to 12 to 18 beers, sometimes 20 beers, sometimes throwing in a shot or two of of liquor and um, back on to doing some pain pills and, and drugs. Now, luckily, I never got into anything heavy, but I always did like the pain pills and I liked the alcohol um, and I like smoking pot. Um, and I always justified that, you know, yeah. pot pot doesn't do anything. It doesn't um, demotivate me. But the more I got sober, I realized, oh, yeah, it, it really did. <laughs> um, the last year of my sobriety at 44 was was probably the darkest I have ever been in my entire life. Um, and I, I tried taking my life. I took 18 Percocets. And I drank a 12 pack of beer and I literally prayed to God. I said, please don't let me wake up tomorrow because I can't stop. I don't know how to stop. I don't want to live this life anymore. I don't want to put my family through this pain anymore. And I woke up the next day. Yeah. And that still wasn't enough. I was like, okay, I woke up. So I must be here for a reason, but I still didn't know what that reason was. So I continued to drink and do drugs, mainly drink. Um, and then the drinking wasn't enough. The beer wasn't enough. So I switched over to drinking whiskey, mm. cut out the beer completely and just went right to whiskey because it was almost an immediate effect. You, know, you didn't have to drink six beers. You could take two or three or four shots and be on the same level as drinking six beers. So yeah, I started drinking the fireball miniatures. And at the end of my addiction for that one year, I went from drinking four or five. I was drinking 25 miniatures a day. Mm. And in my addictive personality, I would tell myself, don't buy a big bottle of it because right, then I right. would actually know how much I was drinking. So buy these miniatures, I could drink them and throw them away and forget about how much I drank and justify drinking more because I really didn't have any clue on how much I was drinking. Yeah. That's a lot of liquor. That really is a lot of liquor. Um, and I was doing, starting to do bad job, my work. I'm a carpenter. I started not meeting the deadlines at work. I started calling out, which I never did. Cause when I work, I work. Yeah. Um, and the boss started noticing my jobs were, weren't getting completed on time. And when they were getting completed, there was a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to look for outside self-esteem, self-esteem from other people. And after 25 years of marriage, I unfortunately had an affair with my wife. And it was all due to my lack of self-esteem, wanting to have that, that feeling of, of, of self-worth again. Um, and, that, and that's all stemmed from my addiction because it, my, it had me so low that I didn't believe anybody wanted anything to do with me, including my wife, including my kids. I mean, I'd come home from work and, and the house would scatter. It was like roaches when you turn the lights on. Yeah. And in the beginning, I was like, cool, I can just sit here on the couch, watch TV and drink. And nobody's bothering me. I don't have to listen to the kids. I don't have to listen to the wife. It was like my time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that I was scaring my children. I was scaring my wife. They didn't know what dad, what husband was walking in that door. Was I the angry, pissed off dad? 
was was I the happy, silly dad? They didn't know, so they didn't want to take any chances. They just left me alone. And I started to get sad because I'd come home and nobody wanted to be with me. So that would make me drink more, mm-hmm. try to get away from that feeling as well. You know, it was it was accumulation of always trying to get away from sadness or depression or guilt by doing it more and more and more, which only added all of those, it just compounded them over and over again to yeah. the point where I just couldn't take any more. <clears throat> and the last the week right before I went to rehab, um, I just couldn't take it. And my wife, my wife told me, you know, I had I got a brand new truck and um I went to the liquor store. And as I was leaving the liquor store, I hit something. And I, I still honestly do not know what I hit. I don't know if it was a, a a car, a street sign or whatever. But I came home. I told my wife, I hit something. I'm going to bed. I didn't want to deal with it. I woke up the next morning. I said, I'm going to go get milk and some water. And she was like, how are you going to do that? And I was like, in my new truck in the driveway. She was, go look at your truck. So I go outside. My right wheel's hanging off. Side mirror's hanging off. Side Side's kind of messed up. And she looks outside and she's like, you don't remember what you did last night, do you? I said, I have no idea. She said, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. She said, something's got to stop and you got to leave. She said, you can't be here right now. This is too much for me. So I call my friend. I'm like, hey, can I come over and hang out for a couple of days? Let that things cool off, you know, not stop mm-hmm. drinking. Let things cool off. So I go to his house and uh, his solution was, hey, you want to go to the bar and drink? And I'm like, hell yeah. So we go to the bar. I drink do some shots. And as I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody. This is the second, just the next day. And, um, I get out and I look at the guy. I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, well, your car looks okay. I said, the front of my bumper's all smashed in. I was like, I'm out of here. I slapped him on his back, got my truck and I took off because I was drunk at that point. I didn't want to get locked up. I didn't want to deal with what I was doing. So I left and I go to his house and I, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, God damn, I'm in trouble. You know, I'm, I'm scared. I was like, I gotta, I gotta leave. I can't stay here. So I go and I spend the next two days in my truck at a park and ride. I went and got liquor, went and got a bag of, I think a Burger King or something. I couldn't eat because my stomach was all jacked up and being nervous about the cops looking for me or having, heaven knows what would happen. So I just sat there and drank for two full days and I turned my phone off because I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to deal with nobody. I just wanted to listen to sad music and dwell on everything that I've done and all the people that I hurt. And on that second day, it was a Friday morning at seven after 10 a.m. I turned my phone on and at nine after 10, my childhood friend, Brandon Novak calls me and he's like, lodging, what the F are you doing? And I said, Mm -hmm. man, I'm in my truck. I'm drunk. I'm tired. I'm hungry. And he said, good. That's what you need. He's like, I just talked to your wife. He's like, we have a, a plane ticket leaving tonight at 8.30 p.m. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to go get help. And I'll say, yeah, I don't know, man. You know, I, I, it's not, you know, trying to play it off. And he's like, trust me, if you go and do this, you'll get back everything that you've lost times 10. I said, okay, okay. So I hang up the phone. Like 20 minutes later, my wife calls me. She said, Tim, I talked to Brandon. Please come home, take a shower, try to eat something, try to take a little nap. Your plane leaves at eight o'clock. I said, okay. So I go home, I take a shower, I try to eat. I still couldn't eat. I was just a nervous wreck because now I'm worrying about going to rehab. And and I just, I wasn't still ready to go. And I sit on the edge of the bed 
And I started just thinking about all of the stuff I've done to my family. And I started to really feel hopeless. Like I just didn't truly believe that rehab was going to help me. So I go downstairs and I put a rope around my neck and I stand on a bucket and I throw it around the rafters and like three minutes go by. And I guess my wife realized I wasn't in the bedroom and the house was quiet and she comes down the steps and she sees me standing in the basement with a rope around my neck on a bucket. And she says, what are you doing? And I decided I can't take this anymore. I, I just want the pain to stop. And she says, please, please get down. Everything is going to be all right. Just please get down. So I got down and I, I laid there for probably 10 minutes on the floor in the basement and cried and cried. And go upstairs and I call my friend Brandon and I'm like, hey, I said, I, I'm, I'm ready. I said, if I don't go now, I said, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. I was like, I can't take it anymore. And all he said was, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure you're not going to catch a cab and get, get out of there and not go on a plane. So I get to BWI and I go past security. I'm sitting there and um, I call him. I said, I'm past security. And he said, okay, brother, I love you. And he hangs up. And I sit down in the seat. And for the first time in my life, this overwhelming feeling of hope comes over my entire body. And something in my head says, everything is going to be all right. I can't explain that experience. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life. It was like all this weight was lifted off of my shoulders. All the nervousness went away. All the, the, the bad feelings went away. It was like I was touched or something. I, I, I can't explain it, but it was an amazing feeling. And when I got to rehab, I knew what happened to me wasn't a coincidence. Something came to me and said, you know, this is the time in your life and, and you're, everything is going to be okay. So when I got to rehab, I went in both feet, did seven meetings a day, saw the outside speakers at seven o'clock PM. I even went to extra meetings because I was, I'm former military. They had a couple extra meetings for former military members that have PTSD and, mm -hmm. and were combat and, so I went to extra meetings twice a week for three hours after all the meetings were over. I did everything that I had to do because I finally realized this was about life and death. And I was at that point in my life where if I didn't take this seriously, it was going to take my life. That's how, I've, that's how I'm approaching this. It's not a game to me. And, and I'm not going to take that experience for granted. I want to share what happened to me because I didn't believe that would ever happen. I truly didn't believe in a higher power. I didn't believe that I could get sober after 27 years. I didn't believe that I could ever love myself again. I didn't believe that people would actually be proud of me again. And it was such a lie to myself. That was my disease telling me all this. It was my disease telling me I wasn't good enough. Nobody cares. You're not worth it. And, and, with the tools that I have learned over the 11 months, the meetings that I go to, the programs that I work, it's all been a lie that my disease was telling me.
you know, because it's cunning and baffling and it comes at you when you're at least not expecting it. And they used to say in rehab, it's, it, no matter how long you're sober, it's in the parking lot doing push-ups, getting stronger and stronger, waiting for you to fall because when it comes, it's going to come to take your ass out. So I, I, I truly am I'm blessed to be here alive. I'm, I'm blessed to share my story with whomever wants to listen because I realize now I have to share. I have to tell the truth about this disease because it is it is not a game. And it's unfortunate that some people have to go multiple times, 20, 30 times. Some people, and they overdose so many times or they find themselves in the ER from alcohol poisoning. It's not that they don't get it. It's, it's just maybe they're not ready. Maybe they haven't hit that bottom. We all have different bottoms, as you know. Oh, yeah. I just, my bottom was in the basement and I had that hatch door that went down a little bit further. And that's just my journey. That's where I had to take my addiction, my disease to, to finally wake up and realize that what a gift life is. Every single day is a gift. Yeah. That's a powerful journey. And, um, you know, there's so much to unpack there that, you know, between the PTSD and the bipolar and ex-military service and you know that all that stuff is going to be relatable to a lot of different people you know because and for us guys it's very difficult to become vulnerable and talk about you know things that aren't maybe as uh we're not as tough as we portray or whatever but this is the kind of stuff that kills people because of the lack of communication about these kind of things and so these conversations are good especially for the fellows you know it's not um it's okay i mean it's okay to talk about this stuff. It is. And, and I, I never wanted to talk about it before because my ego. Right. I didn't want to, I didn't want to seem like, a, I, like I was weak. I didn't want to seem like, I, you know, I wasn't a tough guy. But the truth is when you share and, and when you tell the truth, that's more courageous. That's right. And holding it in to, to be vulnerable is more brave. So, I don't hold back. And like we said before, I, I share as much as possible. I don't yeah. know who's listening to this. I don't know who's yeah. who's in that suicidal position right now that might need to listen to this message and hear this message. I don't know, but I know that I'm going to, I'm going to share the message and hopefully it will reach somebody that needs to hear this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that stuff. And um, so what is your, what is your daily life look like today? As far as recovery goes, what yeah, kind of when things I, do you do? Yeah, well, when I first got home, um, it was funny in rehab, they say do 90 and 90. And I was like, how the hell am I going to do 90 and 90? And, and the guy looked at me and said, did you drink every day? And I was like, yeah. He goes, for how many hours? I was like, well, from the time I got off to the time I went to bed. He's like, so four or five hours a day? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you have one hour for the sobriety for the rest of your life. I was like, okay. So I ended up doing 98 and 98. And um, I was looking for that balance. And I figured, you know, man, I'm going seven days a week. I was like, let's step this back a little bit. So I, I went from seven to four and then I started going to the gym because <clears throat> I wanted to start working on my physical health, well-being as well. So I started doing four meetings, two during the week and two during the weekend. And I would go to work eight to four, get home, take a shower and go immediately to the gym. And as soon as I was, up, I was done with the gym about six, six thirty, I'd go right to the meeting and that would be another another hour. Then I found myself, I wasn't getting home till 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not having any family time now. 
So let me try to balance this out a little bit better. So now I push all my meetings to the weekends. I do two Saturday and Sunday morning, and then I do an evening Sunday night. So all during the week, I go to work, I go to the gym, and then I come home and I spend the rest of my evening with my family. It's all about, for me, is finding that perfect balance between mind, body, and soul. And I, I didn't want to get burnt out from, from uh, the uh, meetings. I didn't want to get burnt out from going to the gym. I didn't want to get burnt out from working all the time. So I split it up equally between the three. And for me, it works out really good. You know, I go to work. I come home. That's a, that's one accomplishment for the day. I go to the gym. I take care of my physical one billing. That's another accomplishment. And then I come home and I spend time with my kids. I spend time with my wife. I actually have a three-year-old grandson. I get to play with him. I get to experience that because I have three daughters. So he's my boy. Yeah. He's my only, he's my only little awesome. man. So yeah, I get to play with him, build trains, you know, watch cartoons with them. And I never really did that with my daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a little different having a daughter and a son. I realize that now having a grandson because he's he's an animal, man. He jumps up and does all kinds of stuff. They play with the they right. play with the baby dolls and then read a book and they're just fine. And, and he just wants to play, play, go and go. And um, but I never did that with my daughters like I do with him. And it was because I was drunk all the time. Yeah. And and I was always worried about me. So always worried about, you know. Do I have my alcohol? If I'm running out, do I got to go to that to the store and get more? You know, can I can I, you know, listen to music? Can I go out into the shed and work out? You know, or you know, all about me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. And now I realize, you know, the more that I balance my life, the more I'm getting back in return because I I stopped making it all about me. I'm more worried about my family, you know, uh, my friends, you know, I. I even though I didn't believe in a higher power for so long, I would still pray at night, but I was always yeah. praying for things for me, you know, help me do this for me, do that for me. Now when I pray at night, I'm like, I thank him for another day of sobriety. I thank him for a, 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 a chance to be a better husband, son, father, and friend. I thank him for a second chance of life. And then I go through my list. Please watch over this person. Please watch over my mother. Please watch over, you know, that person. I stopped making it about me. Yeah. And I started making it about everybody else. And the difference is unexplainable. It truly is. Mm-hmm. But I, I, the key is the balance for me, is to, is to balance yeah. as much yeah. as possible, mm-hmm. not overload one thing with the other and not get burnt out. On, on recovery, not get burnt out on physical exercise, not get burnt out on, on just reading books, but try to sp- spread them out as much as possible and get a little bit of all of it, you know, yeah. over the time, not all at once. Yeah, it's very, that it makes you, it makes us uh, well-rounded and, uh, you know, in addiction, it's all or nothing. So right, it's all or nothing, right? And then we get in recovery and, you know, in some programs we have a sponsor and, you know, they, they talk about balance and, and that's, it changes, you know, early in recovery. It's like tons of meetings. Just go to a lot of yeah. meetings. Then like you were talking about, you know, family, work, um, solitude, time for quiet meditation, things like that. But uh, I like what you shared. Do you have a sponsor? I do have a sponsor. Yes. Um, cool. He's got, he'll be celebrating 40 years in August. So he's been around for a while. 
That's awesome. So uh, what's that relationship like? Um, you know, because a lot of people don't really understand what that means. So I'm not going to lie. The first six months, I didn't have a sponsor. Yeah. And I didn't. So I was told by somebody, I forget who told me that, but they were like, don't just pick a sponsor when you get home. Go to the meetings and watch and look who comes to the meetings. Look who lives the life of recovery. No, it doesn't just talk about it. Look who helps. Look who uh, does charity work. Look who's really involved with the 12 steps and the life of recovery. And so I did that. And I probably went through three or four people. I was like, oh, he can be my sponsor. That person can be my sponsor. That, can... But I always kept coming back to this one guy. Yeah. And he never misses a meeting. He, uh, he helps people after the meetings. He'll go pick him up and take him to recovery house. It's like this gentleman really is, he is a recovery. He's, he's in recovery. His full life is recovery. He's got more years sober than he did doing alcohol or drugs. Yeah. And he takes this for, he takes this for life or death. And finally at the, about the six, seven month mark, I was like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm looking for a sponsor. And he like cut me off and he was like, I'd be honored to be your sponsor. He's like, you come to all the meetings. He's like, you share every time somebody shares. He goes, I've seen you speak to the new people after the meetings, give them your number. He goes, you're doing everything that we try to instill in other people without anybody even asking you how to do it. He's like, I'd be honored to be your, your sponsor. And we meet once we meet once a week. Um, it's either Saturday or Sundays for about an hour or two. And we go over step work. Um, like tonight, I'm actually going to his house tonight to watch a boxing fights. Yeah. You know, he's having, he's having a bunch of guys over from the meetings. There's going to be about five or six of us who are all sober. We yeah. order pizza, drink some soda, and we watch the, watch the fights. And it's, it's yeah. that camaraderie, that brotherhood of, of the fellowship that, yeah. you know, not just in meetings, but outside of meetings that I really enjoy as well. Well, that's a great point because I know when the day that I quit, I went to my meeting where I got a white key tag. And they, they mentioned there was an activity at this church and it was like a fish fry. And someone called me from the, the party in life and wanted me to come to their house and hang out. And they said, well, why don't you hang out here and have some fish fry? And so I hung out totally uncomfortable. You know, it was like <laughs> that moment of my past life and this new journey that I was on. But I say that because I was so afraid of how am I going to have fun? You know, I just, the meetings are great, but what about my free time? You know, and like what you just talked about that fellowship and learning how to do things outside of the meetings that are about fellowship, friends, good, clean fun in a way, you know, and, um, but also, you know, just living life. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the first three months I was sober, uh, my friend had a 4th of July party and uh, actually a fellow Marine I served with. And another one of my Marine friends came down from uh, Michigan. So I hadn't seen him for like 25 years. So it was really cool to see him. And I get there and we hug, shake hands. The first thing he says to me, you want a cold beer, buddy? And I'm like, nah. And he's like, oh, my God, I forgot, man. I'm so sorry. He goes, that was just such a natural thing for me to offer you a beer. I was like no worries. I said, don't even worry about it. Yeah. So that was like my first, that was like the first three months of being sober. And I thought it would bother me more than it did, but I was actually okay with it. And 
to be honest with you, the more the party went on and the drunker these people got, the more turned off I got to the whole, there's just the whole situation. Yeah. And, you know, guys just hanging all over you, talking close, you know, close faced and hitting on other guys, women and like the, the emotions that, that go through. And all. I was like, man, what did I ever see in this? But you don't see it while you're in it. You're, you're full on in addiction. So to you, it's normal. Yeah. But looking on the outside for the first time after three months, I was like, wow. Like this is yep. what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point, and um, I think it's good to actually have that experience for me because then I get to see who I was when I was using or drinking, and also like if I am in a situation like that today, I I'll hang for like where people have two drinks, and then I'll I do the silent goodbye. I don't because there's nothing worse than trying to say goodbye to people that have been drinking. No, man, stick around. Come on. You're having fun. I had a endless goodbye. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just, hey, good to see everybody. And then I just dip. It's all good, you know? So we we learn we have to have to take care of our our well being, our mental well being and our health. Right. And, um, you know, I heard, I read something the other day and it was like, uh, you had a party and somebody says, why don't you drink? You know, and the guy was like, do you smoke cigarettes? And the guy's like, no. He goes, well, why don't you smoke? You know, and he's just like, you know, it's just one of those questions that come out, you know, and, and don't go further. If somebody said they don't want to drink, just respect that and move on. That's you know, so, um, but no, I mean, the, the longer I've gotten sober, the easier it has come to not think about alcohol or drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um I really don't think about it that much. And I have had a couple of dreams that felt really real, mm-hmm. like that I used and I woke up and I was actually disappointed in myself. Yep. And I was like, man, I was like, Oh God, it was a dream. Thank God. I didn't relapse. It was that real to me. I mean, they were pretty, pretty some scary ones, but I haven't thought about it. Yeah. Um, I truly believe that the disease of addiction has been lifted from me for right now. Yeah. I'm not going to speak about tomorrow, next month, but as of up to this day, I have not had the urge to use or drink anything mind alternating. And that is truly a miracle. It really is. Yeah. And, and I'm the same way. When I have a, a using dream, I wake up grateful that I didn't not, oh, I wish it was real. You know, it, you know, and also what it does is it lets me know, in fact, about a week and a half ago, I had a using dream. And I, I've been doing this 15 years, almost 16. Oh. And, and what it, what that tells me is that it's still in there. Right. It's just letting me know that it's still in there. So I, in another way, I'm grateful for it because I'm like, you know what? I just got to stay vigilant with my program and how I walk recovery. And, and that's okay. It's a good reminder. Right. It's like a little reminder. I'm, I'm waiting for you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what? I've had dreams in recovery where I took a plate of food to a recovery get together, like at a 12 step function, I've had a dream that I was participating in recovery too. So it's like, it's, it's all these little subtle reminders from whatever the universe is trying to tell me that, you know, recovery's it's a good thing in my life too. So. And, you know, I really wish, you know, the 12 steps, which I've been reading up that I wish people who don't have, 
addiction disease, the disease of addiction could use the 12 steps in different ways in their life because it truly does transform you as a human being. Yeah. It doesn't just touch on your addiction. It makes you a better all around person to everybody and everything that you do. Um, I kind of was like, when I got to rehab, I was like, these 12 steps I've heard about in my entire life. They don't, yeah. but then when you start digging deep and really getting into them and you actually start doing the work, you're like, wow, this really does transform you into a better person all the way around with everything that you do. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's wild. And then you, you get to a point where you go, wow, alcohol and drugs were just a symptom. There was stuff there was a, there was an underlying cause why I used those in the first place. And then we get to those and you go, wow. Okay. So really that was just my coping me mechanism. It wasn't a good one, but in the beginning it wasn't a good, one, you know, yeah. and then it, it just turned dark and ugly. But, you know, they always say like, if drugs and alcohol run you to the rooms, what was running you to the drugs and alcohol? Yeah. That's funny. Cause I, right before we came on, I just read something that said, um, I see, I see you have a Band-Aid on. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's, to, it's to help all my you know, emotions. He goes, why don't we take the Band-Aid off and look at the bullet hole? Yeah, I saw that one. That was a good one. Yep. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I was like, okay, I get that. Yeah, because there always is an underlying reason why you're using. Oh, 100%. 100%, man. Well, I'm really glad you're on this journey. And uh, congratulations on 11 months. And I want to thank you for your service in the military, you know, and everything that you went through and sharing your story. Um, before we get off here, uh, this is the Recovery Nuggets podcast. So I wanted to ask you, what would you like to share with people? Your What Recovery Nuggets do you have to share? My biggest thing for me is don't lose hope. I lost it and it almost took my life. I almost allowed it to take my life. That feeling of hopelessness in that dark place is a very scary place to be you know ask for help don't be ashamed of your story open your arms and, and accept the help that people are trying to give you don't seclude yourself into that bubble where you don't want to talk to anybody don't think talking is a sign of weakness it's a sign of greatness you know i i my, my, the gratitude that I have for everyday life came from my willingness to surrender and my ability to accept my disease of addiction. I finally let down the wall and I allowed everything to come to the surface and to finally deal with all of my issues that took me into the room of recovery. I never dealt with anything before. I just let them stack up and stack up and stack up until it was so overwhelming that I did not want to deal with any of it. The, the 11 months of my life in sobriety, I, I have been more blessed than the last 27 years of my life. And it's truly amazing to think about what else is to come for me. What else is my path leading me to, you know, we, we're all, we're, we all have great decisions, every single person. Are we going to tap into that? And I, I believe now my sole purpose is to help those with mental illness and addiction to show them that, yes, we can recover. 
Yes, we can live the lives we've always dreamed of. Don't quit, don't give up, and don't ever lose hope. That's awesome. Thank you, Tim. Disclaimer, Recovery Nuggets podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I am not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experiences, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Each person's journey in recovery is unique. Thank you for listening to Recovery Nuggets podcast. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Nuggets podcast. I want to thank our guests this week. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can reach out on Instagram at Recovery Nuggets podcast. And the email is Recovery Nuggets podcast at gmail.com also like and subscribe on spotify and apple and be great if you leave a five-star review that really helps out the podcast and uh, really want to thank you for showing up for your recovery today 